meeting of the Human Resources Committee. I guess we should have a roll call if we have. Uh... Trustee Banerjee? Here. Trustee Hernandez? Here. Trustee Jensen? Here. Trustee Peterson? Hey, he is there. There he is. You're on mute, Ross. I think Ross is muted. Yeah, there we go. No, I'm, I'm not muted. Can you not hear me? Now we can. We yeah, we can hear you now. We do have a quorum. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Our next item of business is the approval of the minutes. And um, I, as I recall, Trustee Banerjee did join us for the last meeting. You're muted, Kin Kinney. I wasn't in the January. Oops. Can you hear me? I, I I wasn't on the committee in January. I think Joe was on the January maybe, uh, but I joined. I was appointed after the meeting. So all right, and um, the we ended up not having a meeting in April, so that was my my um, mistake. So then, if the other trustees, if you've had a chance to look at the minutes, if someone would make a motion, I'll make a motion to move uh, to approve the minutes as uh, submitted. Second. Okay, and I approve, so we can move on from that. The minutes are approved. Thank you. I'll abstain. Thank you. So, um, our next item of business is to the discussion of benefits, leave, and remote working changes. I um, this is this is going to be a pretty big topic. There's been so much going on, and I. I have to say I um, checked into your desktop chat today, Del Vecchio, and uh, uh, there was there were some questions about this issue from um, employees. I understand, so this is good timing. Thanks. Go ahead, Tony. Good. So I'm I'm going to share my desktop and go through the slide deck here rather than use the book. It's a little bit more. It's easier to move it forward that way. So I'm going to share. Tell me once you can see it or if there are any issues as we're going through the presentation. Are you able to see the slides? Not yet. No. Mike, is that a yes? Yeah? No. Okay. I see. One moment. There we go. Yeah, we got it now. Got it. Okay. So uh, we're going to, uh, for this part of the presentation, we're going to run through uh, both the benefits that we put in place to try and support our employees through COVID-19, uh, the leaves, uh, which uh, was a big issue that we looked at in terms of how to support employees, and then remote work. And we've moved about somewhere in the region of about 450, close to 500 employees to at least some uh, portion of their time being spent off-site. So we'll talk a little bit about that and where we are. So um, Del Vecchio and I talked a lot as this started, and Mike and others in the leadership team about how to best support our employees. Um, and we were clear that we wanted to do our very best to put in place a suite of benefits that were going to help our employees in a very difficult time. So I'll run through what we did on the healthcare uh, side, which was we added the telehealth benefit, meaning that uh, our insurance plan would reimburse for telehealth visits, which, which was not in the original plan as it wasn't in many plans. 
So we talked to the, uh, our third-party administrator and made that change pretty quickly so that employees could see their position remotely, and that would be fully reimbursed. Um, we waived the member cost share for any telehealth visits, so there's no copay for those visits. Uh, so it made an improvement in terms of utilization for employees that they could visit their physician remotely. Most physicians were already seeing patients that way, and there was no copay for that. Our freedom of choice and independence plans, which are our self-insured plans, we waived the cost for COVID testing. Uh, so we moved it to effectively a preventative care, even though that's not really what it is, but it meant that there will be no charge to the employee. Uh, and Kaiser waived all costs related to COVID diagnosis and treatment. So that made it uh, better for about 40% of our employees that are in the, the Kaiser plan. Uh, we amended our dependent care FSA, so flexible spending account, to allow mid-year changes. What we thought would happen is, as schools and daycares were not in session, uh, that employees may not want to defer as much money tax-free to pay for that and, and change their deduction. So we allowed them to go into the plan if they wanted to reduce the deduction to that plan so they didn't put as much money into it and they could move it somewhere else if they wanted to do that. Uh, and we increase employees' access to medication by allowing up to two early refills of prescription medications at the pharmacy, uh, not including Schedule II controlled substances. And so that, what that meant is they could order up to three months of uh, medication, but at only char be charged for one, so people weren't having to go to the pharmacy. They had less concerns about those types of things. So around the health and welfare uh, benefits, that those are the changes we, we were able to make pretty quickly. Under the CARES Act, we were required to make some changes to 457 and 403B plans, uh, which meant that employees could borrow more money, uh, either 100% or $100,000, uh, whichever was lower, from a vested account balance, allowed de delayed repayments for outstanding loans for up to a year, uh, and allowed coronavirus-related distributions uh, up to 100000 um, and so Pru accepted also alternative forms of debt because it was difficult to get some debt certificates. And so really just following the act as required and then making it as easy as possible for employees to access those benefits that were intended to benefit them under the, the law change. Um, sorry, we also contracted with Bright Horizons. Uh, they're a provider of uh, what we would term backup care or emergency care. And so it's uh, childcare and elder care. So if you had an instance where you were caring for an elder and your date and that person caring for them was unable to make it, you call this number. Uh, they will provide someone who is able to come and then take care of your parent or elder or your child. Um, and they have a large number of people who can do that. Uh, they also have daycare centers for children, uh, many of which were open, some of which were closed during COVID, but it means that employees who have an, up to 15 instances a year can call this number and someone will come take care of their child and that allows them free to, re, to come to work. And so it's intended not as a long-term solution, but as an emergent solution. And so that just meant that we were, we were plugging gaps as they became apparent to us with COVID-19. Uh, and this is something that we intend, we signed a multi-year contract here, so we intend this to run into the future, not to go away with change to the law under COVID-19. Tony, can you talk about about, do you have any data about how much that benefit was used, the Bright Horizons benefit? Yeah, it's in a couple of slides, so I'll come to that, Chris, and I'll, if I can, I'll get to that slide and pick it up there, and then if you have more detailed questions, I'll answer them. Um, so access up to 15 annual days of backup subsidized in-home care, uh, $6 an hour, 
uh, is what the employee pays. So that's their, their copay, and we take up the rest of it. Um, for a childcare center, it's fifteen dollars a day, or twenty-five dollars if you happen to have two or three children. And again, we take up the rest of that cost. Uh, you can have an online app. You can call by phone, or you can visit the website. Um, what we saw is that we had 3,393 eligible uh, employees, so it was for full and part-time benefit-eligible employees. 72% of them registered. The benchmark shared with us with Bright Horizons is about 30% of eligible employees registered. So we had, that would suggest to us we got the message out quite well. People were aware of the benefit and they registered for it. We had five unique, 500 unique daycare uh, or days of coverage provided. Uh, one of the things I didn't mention is uh, up until June or May, sorry, uh, we allowed emergent coverage, which meant if you were unable to get daycare or felt uncomfortable with it, you could pay a family member uh, or a neighbor, someone you were comfortable with to cover your child. Uh, if you didn't want someone that you didn't know coming into your home during that period, and we would reimburse up to $100 a day for that through Bright Horizons. They administered that for us. Because it was, um, I would say, um, an unsettled time for everyone, that sort of allowed people to get access to this and come to work uh, without having necessarily to have someone they were uncomfortable with coming into, come into their home. That expired because it was went for a short period of time. We've had there were two additional days um, of childcare and one for elder care used on top of the 500 days. And we're working continually with a provider to sort of push the message. Again, we've got great registration, great initial pickup on in terms of the crisis coverage. And now we need to see if this is a benefit that people are going to use on an ongoing basis. I think some of it has been offset by the amount of leaves we had. And as those employees return to work, I would expect the utilization to pick up. And I'll talk more about that in a, in a couple of slides. Um, what this equates to, Trace, is roughly about $50,000 in cost to AHS at this point for this particular benefit. Um, so I expect it to pick up. We have a cap on the expenditure for the year, which is $150,000, uh, and we've spent $50,000 to this point. And as I said, I expect the rest to pick up as people return from leaves uh, and are still faced with a challenge around how to provide care for their children, either through daycare, through an absence of daycare or an absence of the school year being uh, coming back in a normal fashion. Tony, you mentioned um, that eligible employees were full-time and um, and permanent part-time. Does, I mean, uh, is every employee eligible or do they have to to verify the existence of a, um, of a child or a, an adult that they're caring for? No, um, they have to, they can, let me think that through. I want to be accurate in my response. They may be required to provide some documentation. Um, their dependent eligibility has already been set in terms of child. Um, I want to verify exactly what we require for an adult, uh, but I don't think we do a, a mass audit to verify that they're not lying about it. But I'll, I'll confirm that for you, Tracy, and get back to an exactly what we require for that. Okay. Uh, they are all, they're eligible to access the benefit if they're full and part-time. Um, and we have information on depend, dependents that would be children already in our system because we do a dependent. We've done the dependent eligibility audit and all new employees hired after that. We gain documentation on that as they come on board. Um, so uh, I'm going to move on to leaves because I think this this dovetails nicely with um, with the childcare coverage and elder care coverage because I think it's going to pick up 
as leaves diminish. Um, so I'll, I'll talk through a couple of things. Our, our approach to leaves, uh, the number of employees taking leaves, uh, breakdown of the, the high, highest areas of utilization. Uh, so that's, you know, good to understand where that, that has occurred, both for this purpose and also for the purpose of where we require registry and other support. And, and this is training on the organization. And then specifically the costs uh, by pay period that this, this is um, cost the organ AHS. So this is a little detailed and I, I won't run through it all. Uh, the Families First Coronavirus Act uh, came into being uh, with the intent of providing uh, paid leave for people who were either exposed to COVID, had a family member exposed to COVID, and so they were required to quarantine or had children or other dependents who needed care because of COVID-19. And there are various elements of that act, some of which are at full pay, others which were intended to be at two-thirds. Um, as we were wading through this, uh, as it was going through Congress, and it was unsettled at the time when it, when it would pass, exactly what provisions would pass, and for how long uh, it would be in existence, and also whether there would be exceptions to healthcare, we decided to apply the act almost in its entirety and maintain full pay for our employees. There are you know, some major reasons for that. I think uh, we've been clear for a number of years now we're an anchor institution. Uh, many of our employees live in the immediate community and many of them are primary breadwinners for their families. And exhausting their PTO uh, and potentially then being on unpaid leave, therefore exhausting coverages and not having benefits didn't seem the right approach for us. Now, our approach may not be suitable for everyone, but it was the right approach for AHS in terms of what our role in this community is, we think. Um, and so we applied um, up to 12 weeks of leave. Uh, if you're exposed to COVID, a family member was and you cared for them, you need to isolate. And if you need to care for a child because of a COVID-based closure of either daycare or childcare. And we sort of simplified that in a chart form. And we use this as we explained it to our employees. And we work with Matrix, who's our, admin, our leave administrator for us. And so it basically went through, if, an, if, a, if we required you to go home because you're exposed, we didn't have contract, uh, contract precautions in place and we thought there was a breach of PPE, you, you, had, you have the potential for leave. Now, that doesn't mean you had to take leave. If it was myself, for example, we thought there was a potential breach, I could work remotely if that was acceptable to Del Vecchio and it made sense. I didn't have to take the leave, but a leave was available. And so for a, you know, someone such as a frontline nurse who's providing care at the bedside, whether there isn't an alternative to work remotely, then leave would, would have been the option available to them. For someone who could remote, work remotely and was asymptomatic, i.e. they didn't need to be resting or um, could have worked online from home, then that was available as well. So not everyone had to take a leave simply because of an exposure, but some you could if you needed to. Again, depending upon the job and whether you could work remotely and whether you were symptomatic. Um, if the local authority or physician, i.e. by authority, the county, the state required you to remain home, uh, the first 14 days were covered under emergency paid sick leave. Uh, if the employee needs to stay home for more than two weeks because of their own illness, uh, or whether they need to stay off more than two weeks for a family member, or if the employee needs to stay off work for more than two weeks because of a school closure, all of those were covered by emergency family medical leave. And so the intent here was to lay out for our employees and our vendor that helped us implement this, uh, the circumstances under which leave was available to them. And again, the basic principle was, 
we didn't want employees who had to make a choice between coming to work and leaving a child uncared for or an elder uncared for or a family member uncared for. Uh, and while it's got costs associated with it, we felt our role in the community was such that this was a better solution than the alternatives uh, because we felt there would be a large number of employees who'd be left in, quite frankly, untenable positions about choosing whether or not to exhaust PTO uh, and at that point being on un either on an unpaid leave uh, or having to seek some alternative. Uh, and we felt that this, particularly at the time, not knowing the length of COVID and hoping, expecting by June, July, that we would be through the very worst of it. We think this was the right decision at this time. And we thought it showed to our employees that, frankly, we're doing our very best to support you in a difficult time. Uh, and hopefully that's going to pay dividends in the future. And we will, only time will tell, but the intent was to support people in any way we could. Um, in terms of the, the, the total number of leaves was 791. That doesn't mean 791 individual leaves, and I'll explain that in the next slide, or 791 people, but the average days on a leave is 37, just about, just over. Uh, John George Nursing is the highest utilizer with 60. Um, individual leaves, again, that may not be 60 people. It could have fallen into any one of those categories or overlap. Uh, Highland Med Surge, which is, falls under a single leadership, we had 44 uh, leaves. Eastmont, which is obviously our largest clinic, uh, had 39. Uh, John uh, Highland Housekeeping, 27, and Highland Patient Access, 24. And so, in some of these areas, significant numbers, um, you know. And I take the position, I, I still believe this, that most of the people who took leave needed leave. Um, and either for childcare issues or others. And you see when we look at a month that most of them are related to childcare. Uh, people are left in a position of not having an ability to deal with the situation. And so we believe uh, this offset those pressures on our employees, but obviously these leaves are gonna come to an end. They exhaust them like any other protection. Um, so this is a summary for the period that ended 629. So. Um, this was what I was able to get and get into the packet for you that we have updated data, but this was what I could publish before uh, this meeting. So you see from the period 619.20 to 629.20 that the leaves dropped. Uh, there were 400 em uh, 450 employees on leave uh, uh, 619.20. It dropped to three, 393 by 629. Again, the the issue I mentioned earlier, that someone could overlap and leaves, go from one to another, and so that's counted separately. Uh, but 393 employees were on leave uh, by 629.20. Um, the vast majority are childcare. Uh, kids are out of school, there's no daycare offering, that people are not finding an alternative. Uh, and I don't know, quite frankly, that that's gonna change. And I think that's something we're gonna have to keep a close eye on as people exhaust these leaves um, because Alternatives haven't materialized. School, the school year is not going to be what it was. Some kids are going to be schooled from home remotely. Uh, my own are in Almeida, and they're doing a mixed model of both at home and online. For younger children, I think that's going to be really challenging. Uh, and where employees can't work remotely, these leaves do come to an end, and the expectation would be at that point they do return to work. Uh, and ideally, they've been able to come up with an alternative in that time, or we can be, we're going to try and be as flexible as we can but obviously we've got to deliver services to our patients. Um, employees with a return to work day between 629 and 7.4, so 108 we expect to return to work in that period. 
because they've exhausted the leave and so they'll be coming back into the workforce. Um, we expect the, the reduction in emergency childcare leaves by 38, so that's 12% of the total leaves. They'll be returning to the workforce again. So quarantine leaves have decreased, i.e. those people who were required to self-quarantine because of an exposure or that of a family member, again, that's dropped significantly as well. So you see that number of 436 going down to 395, we see people coming back into the workforce. Um, you know, we're fortunate that that's coinciding with the increase in volume. Um, you know, it's these parents and not just parents, other people who have issues are, are going to return to this workforce. We were able for the most part to manage without enormous amounts of travelers um, or registry. We needed some significant part um, you know, we were able to negotiate six-week contracts rather than 13-week contracts, so that gave us some latitude. And as those people time out, this part of the workforce is returning. And hopefully that's going to balance out over time, although the costs for this were significant. So uh, on the screen, what you see now is uh, pay periods. Uh, total expense is just about, just over $7 million. Um, this is uh, broken out by pay period, number of hours, and total FTEs. Uh, that were paid during those periods. And so, as you can see, uh, 5.30.20 was the highest, uh, oh, sorry, um, 5.16.20 was the highest payroll period, and you see it decreasing the two pay periods following. And we would expect that trend to continue. We think it's going to come down now. It doesn't mean that the costs go away. Obviously, there are people still on leaves, but we see uh, certainly a couple of pay periods with the cost dropping, and we would hope to see that continue going into the future. But the problem that our employees face is not going to go away. People are looking for care and solutions. COVID isn't going to vanish. We're about, to, not quite, again, I have myself here, we're going to enter the flu season as well. And so it's going to be unclear how, uh, when someone presents the difference between flu versus COVID-19 diagnosis, it's going to be difficult to tell. And so we've got some real challenges ahead of us, and we're going to have to think carefully about what benefits we can provide to help employees at the same time being cost conscious, knowing that we invested very heavily in this. And it was done with good intent. It was done to support our employees, but it came at a cost. And as we think going forward, we're gonna to have to manage carefully uh, how we support our employees in the next phase of COVID and beyond. Tracy, did you have a question? No. No, um, I, the numbers, thanks for providing the numbers and hours. That's really helpful. I think the only thing what, I, what I'd kind of like to see, and it wouldn't be that hard maybe um, at some point, is just kind of a, after all of the um, leaves have been exhausted and we're back to some semblance of normal, what was the actual impact, like a, um, you know, a pie chart of the available hours and then the hours that were actually taken, the hours that were worked and hours that were taken? But, um, let me say let me say this back to you to make sure I'm, I'm thinking of it correctly. So you think about how many hours we would want employees to work in a pay period and how many they took up, what was taken off in leave? No, in, in retrospect, just when we look back and look at um, how the benefit was, man it was managed very well, but how it was utilized, I'd be um, okay. interested to see how, how many um uh, you know, either by hours or by shifts, probably shifts would be easier, just the number of shifts that were taken off, um, the proportion of shifts, I guess, 
is what I'm trying to say that was taken. Okay. Let, let me think about that and I'll talk with payroll and our HRS department and we'll, we'll try and do some analysis and see what we can pull. And then we can have some dialogue before the next meeting and talk about whether it meets what you're asking. Uh, but we can certainly look at that. You're welcome. And Tony, the, the, those are the $7 million that's system-wise. That's, that, uh, that's correct, Ross. Yeah, that, that's the total. Um, I talked with uh, Kim Miranda and Ann Metzger last week just to make sure this was a capture of everything that relates to the COVID leads, didn't capture anything else. Uh, and this is the number uh, that we've hit across the system. And again, we're gonna, that, numbers, that bottom line is going to get larger, but the trend is hopefully on the downward uh, end as opposed to the upward. Um, but again, over time, we're going to have to see, and we're going to have to work our way through going forward how we manage those staffs who don't have an alternative. You know, we, um, we, uh, some, we've had an instance within our employee health department where uh, an employee needed to take the leaves, there was an issue, and she's now exhausted those leaves. And the leader needs that person to come back to help us support the organization. And so that's a challenge. Uh, and I don't think that I think those challenges are going to be pretty significant across the system, and so we should be ready for them. Um, and I, at this point, we don't have great solutions to that problem. You know, we don't have access to set up a school or space to you know provide care for everyone's children, and so they're going to be left in this, this difficult position. One that we were trying to avoid by having this benefit. But COVID has stretched far beyond what people initially thought, or any of us thought, to be quite honest. And now we're going to have to see, are we able to come up with alternatives or are we left with difficult decisions, both for the employee and ourselves, the ones that we were trying to avoid by doing this. That said, we did put a benefit in place that other healthcare providers did not. And so we created as much cushion and runway as we could for our employees. And so it's a matter of working with them where they can work remotely. We're going to support that. Uh, where we can be flexible, we'd want to support that. Where we can't, and it's sort of provision of care and there isn't really an alternative, we're going to need them to come back to work. And I do think there are going to be real challenges and employee relations issues around that. So that's why I want you to be aware of it. But there are no, the other part is there are no simple answers to it. I don't, we're not alone in this circumstance. I talked to other CHROs in the Bay Area. They didn't provide a benefit like this. They're seeing challenges with people being able to come to work and they're having to deal with them on a case-by-case -case basis. There really are not good solutions to this for anyone or any any business, let alone those in healthcare, where we're getting, you know, more business while others are in either lockdown or they have a lower volume of business than they would typically have. We're going to have more, and also we need our workforce to deliver that, and it's just going to be an ongoing challenge. Um, Tony, uh, yeah, this is. This is Maria, and just have a quick question about one policy that sometimes exists on other um, sites like this. Um, were any of these benefits in terms of time off allowed to be shared or donated to others? So in, term, in terms of the leaves, absolutely not, because they were specific to the individual. And we okay. aligned the policy with yeah. the coronavirus for the fact so it related to self. Okay. Um, uh, so for that, for that, the answer is no. We do have hardship policies internally about donation of PTO and okay. other options within the organization, but specific to this, no, because it's about your individual circumstance. Okay. Thank you. Um, so one of the other elements um, that we've been dealing with is moving from a 
would say 20th century, uh, not necessarily approach, but 20th century environment in terms of remote working closer to the 21st century. Um, and that's just a matter of the reality of healthcare. It's, it's not unique to us. It was the same when I worked at Stanford. I worked on site every day in an office, everyone that I, my colleagues did. Uh, and although we were off site from the hospital, uh, 95 to 97% of the staff, including IT staff, were on site. We had large office buildings, and that has been the history of healthcare for some period of time. Even though we're close to Silicon Valley and they're working remotely, we've been very much focused about being on site and being present because those in the organization that are at the care delivery end of the business are on site, and they often want that interaction with the people that are in support functions, IT, HR, finance, accounting, to be on site as well to reflect you know, that this is the environment we're in. We're in the, the care business and our care deliverers are here. And so the support functions traditionally have been on site within healthcare. Um, so our starting point related to this is we had a policy. Uh, I'd written one some time ago uh, for the organization because we had remote workers in IT and some others that worked off site. It wasn't broad, but it wasn't broadly used. Uh, and it was available only to unrepresented staff. We hadn't negotiated with our unions um, because obviously it would be a term and condition of employment if we were to withdraw it from an employee who was off-site. And so we'd limited it to unrepresented staff, uh, and it was used fairly sparingly. You know, it, particularly uh, the IT area was the, the biggest user of it because they had people uh, who were used to this and, and recruiting from other organizations. Uh, the change would have been difficult, and so we had a few people that utilized it, but they were fa fairly few and far between. Um, so during COVID-19, uh, we waived a number of provisions uh, of the policy. We agreed and got waivers from most of our unions that the policy would apply, with the exceptions of some elements. Some of those elements were that employees were not allowed um, to have someone else working remotely at home with them. They had to have a space where they were isolated from others in the policy. And so it was written originally to facilitate the fact that some of our employees are going to have access to PHI and they shouldn't be working around other people in the same location with access to PHI. And we also understood that lots of people were having to work from home. Their, their spouses, uh, partners, and others may have had to work from home. They may not live in a large home. They could be in an apartment. And so we, we didn't want to restrict those people and force them to come to work uh, because of the rules that were in the policy. And so we waived those provisions to allow people to be able to work from home uh, and then to access um, the systems from home. We they were able to use their own computers uh, and access the VPN in that method. And so our IT department did a great job in getting that set up pretty quickly. Uh, and so they could access the VPN through that. Uh, and it meant that we didn't have to get as many assets as we might otherwise have done. We had a low number of uh, laptops at the time. And so we still needed or wanted to get employees to be able to work remotely. Uh, and so the, the ability for them to VPN in through their own um, uh, computer meant that we could allow more people to make facility of this instead of just restricting to those who had a company laptop. And so that broadened the, the number out. And the IT team, I think, got everything set up, from my perspective, very quickly and was very supportive of the staff being able to do this. So. What, what are we looking for as we, you know, consider remote working? We want to use the experience of COVID-19, and I use this 
example, Tracy, you listened today to Del Vecchio's call on a number of other calls. I consider it akin to telehealth. We got telehealth as an organization set up in what I would think of as pretty record time. We went from almost every visit being on-site to most visits being off-site in our ambulatory division. Uh, remote work was a few people to close to four or 500 people in a very quick period of time. And so it's clear that we can do this. And so the question is, why would we not continue to do this and reflect the environment that surrounds us in the Bay Area uh, and be sure that employees, we're competitive in the marketplace. And as COVID stretches on, that we don't require people to come back into the office unnecessarily. If we can have them work remotely, they get their work done effectively. Let's keep it in that. Let's keep that being the case. Um, so in our speed, uh, not all jobs were considered. Um, we work with managers, as you would expect. I can look at this and have very strong views about who can and can't work remotely, but they don't report to me and I'm not responsible to deliver the work. So we can partner from a HR function, but we had to work with the operational areas. Uh, so local managers decided, we asked them to consider certain things. Could it be performed uh, remotely? Could we get the technology for people to perform remotely? And could the major functions of the job be performed? If the answer was yes, then we wanted them to be able to work remotely. Um, and so, again, we're looking uh, for this to be the way forward as opposed to simply saying, do you want to allow this person to work remotely? It's, if they can, then how do we find a way to support them? I'm going to jump out, if I may, for one second. Uh, I'm going to share, stop sharing and go to share something else. Um, do you see the web page? And so um, our learning and development team pretty quickly uh, built this page um, for our managers uh, so that they could effectively get information on how to manage staff remotely. So um, some basic video resources down here on the right, how to collaborate effectively with your team is remote, how to actually work when you're remotely managing through crisis, um, both of the Healthy Me program, so mindfulness, mental focus, um, strength from within, really focused on helping people be successful while working remotely. Various articles, uh, again, so people could look at ways of working remotely because this was the first time they were doing it. And I'll, I'll go into our survey in a moment so you can see more about that. Uh, ergonomics and body mechanics when you're working from home, a little different environment than being in the office every day. And then we had some training modules in terms of how to manage remotely, what the policy is, how to transition workers to remote work. And so that policy is up, in, that module is up, and the learning and development team are developing more modules right now, again, to help people manage their staff remotely, to manage themselves remotely. And so really we're building this resource to, to help them be as successful as uh, we hope they can be. So let me just stop sharing for a moment. Tony, uh, I'm just curious. Does is there does um, AHS have a certain um, meeting video meeting policy or or provider? Is is, is it Zoom or Microsoft Office or something else? And also, uh, uh, my other kind of a follow up is, how much yeah. work was this for IT to ensure ensure security? 
So Zoom is the provider. Um, can you see the slides again? I just want to mm -hmm. that. I'll go back. Okay, good. Um, Zoom is the provider we use and that has significant security. The I team set that up pretty quickly. We've been using Skype previously, uh, but Zoom is the provider. There is not a specific meeting policy right now. We're working on a number of policies and HR and IT are working on technology usage policy right now because there are some things that come up in terms of the use of Zoom uh, and how to, one, how for that to be effective and two, uh, how to stay within the general boundaries of, of managing staff through this sort of medium, which is new to a number of people. So we're working with IT on that policy right now. They were able to get everything up pretty quickly. We already had an infrastructure in place in terms of broadband, in terms of um, being able to get people to use VPN. Uh, so that was not a, a huge burden. Uh, I think as we go forward, we're going to have to make some transitions in terms of assets and moving more onto AHS assets to ensure the security of PHI. And that's really a discussion for our CISO, our, our Chief Security Information Security Officer, with our Chief Technology Officer about the right way forward, and I defer to them. And I've had some discussion, but they're talking about what the best way forward with that is. Um, to ensure we were on the right track as we look to the way forward here, uh, we surveyed both the employees and the managers. Uh, we used a fairly basic survey using SurveyMonkey. Uh, this is the employee survey, and I'll go to the manager results in a moment. A uh, vast majority of people who are doing this are non-clinical professionals, IS, HR, accounting, and so on. Um, we asked them about their experience at AHS, so we understand what their background is. Uh, have you worked remotely while you're at AHS? Over 50%, not at all, you know, 15, 17% once a month. And as you see, we were predominantly an on-site environment. The basic question, would you like to continue working remotely? It's almost universal from the employees. And so, you know, there are all kinds of reasons for it. And many of them are good reasons. Uh, some of is latitude, ability not to commute, you know, less wasted time, more effective. And for others, they, it's just a better environment for them. So these are the questions we asked, um, and I won't be uh, belabor of, of going through every single one of them, but you'll see um, the vast majority of the questions are agreeing strongly agree from the employees. Did you have a good experience? Work, working remotely has been positive. They've been able to manage distractions. I've dedicated workspace that allows them to work. Um, you know, what's interesting through all of that, they're very comfortable working remotely. They think it's been a positive experience. Um, if you continue to work remotely, would you, are you comfortable not having a Cuba office? And then you see a big shift, the final question. So while people are still leaning towards they neither disagree to strongly agree, the shift is downwards in terms of are you willing to give up your workspace? Because one of the things I think we need to consider is if we have now anywhere between three and 500 people who work predominantly remotely, do we need the same spaces as we've operated in before? Uh, and that's a question as to do we need every office? Could you have people hot desk? Could you have people work in the office some of the time and therefore shrink your overall footprint? And that's not an easy, you know, uh, just ratio of if we have 200 people work remotely, we can eliminate 200 cubes. People are going to have to come into the office sometimes. We're going to have to have meetings. 
there are going to be times we're going to need them in the workplace. And so it's going to have to be if they're off-site the majority of the time, that could be three or four days a week, then maybe we can eliminate a cube. And we're going to have to do, you know, look at this very carefully from a space planning and an IT planning perspective as to what we can eliminate if we're actually uh, able to keep all of these people off-site. And that's the objective we're working towards. We don't want to return people back to the office unless we need to do unless we need to do so. So um, we also surveyed the managers, uh, so we understood what their experience was like in terms of their own working offsite, and then how it felt to them managing employees. Uh, so they've got two elements to it: their own experience of being able to work offsite, and then what it's like to manage employees when their employees are offsite, and so are they. So this is a breakdown by location. You see the largest numbers, not unexpectedly, Highlands, the largest location we have, um, and also the System Support Center, uh, opposite the Coliseum. Uh, IT has predominantly been based at Creekside, so most of the IT staff worked remotely once we moved to this model, although some had been previously. And then San Leandro, Fairmont, and Almeida in much smaller numbers. Um, so we get a sense, it is across the system that people have been working remotely, but you see those large pockets where they're mainly support staff rather than uh, patient care delivery staff. Again, similar numbers in would you like to continue, but about 10% have indicated no. So much larger percentage than for the staff, <laughs> but still the vast majority of people are wanting to continue in the model that we've set up here. And so I think we're trying to wrestle with how do we make this work as opposed to how do we get back to the way it was before. Uh, because there's no, there's not a necessity to return people to work if we're being as productive off-site as they were on. Uh, and I, most of it's anecdotal at this point. Uh, productivity has been maintained. I wouldn't say there's been a drop-off. I've talked to our IT leader and a couple of other areas. And in some areas where there were, I would say, some done, um, interpersonal dynamic issues, uh, those issues have vanished because those staff are not interacting with each other in a negative way anymore, but the productivity has been maintained. So a set of problems where people weren't necessarily getting along when sitting next to each other have resolved themselves because they're not doing it, but they are getting their work done. And so that is a positive outcome in that particular instance. It's in one area. Uh, but as we go through this, we may see other similar circumstances where there's an improvement because the dynamic wasn't working particularly well before. This has allowed people some of their own space and not to feel that pressure from colleagues, but they're able to measure the work's getting done. Tony, can you comment on um, how much, how many clinicians or whether the, the, the provision uh, of this benefit or allowing clinicians to work remotely since there's been a telecare benefit and there's been some visits that have been remotely done. Have we, how has that been um, reflected in the remote working? Uh, we do have a lot of the ambulatory physicians are working remotely, the primary care providers um, initially work remotely. There may be more back on site now. It's a little hard to get a good number on that because many of them we're in Oak Care and have now transitioned to East Bay Medical Group very recently. Um, and because they're not AHS employees, I don't have good numbers on that. I do know that, we, that people have been working remotely on the physician side. Where it's bedside care, that hasn't been possible. Uh, for some of the 
care delivery side, could be social work. Um, we have some interns that work for Karen Wise, and they were able to provide therapy remotely through telecare. That worked well. Uh, and I know some of the primary care uh, primary care providers have been providing televisit, telehealth visits, and that's worked very well. The number of telehealth visits has been very positive, and as one may not have offset the total lost visits of in-person, has certainly added a portion uh, of visits back into our ambulatory division that we would have otherwise lost. And so providers are definitely working remotely. It's predominantly on the primary care side, but also some of the subspecialty side. But again, because they're not our employees, it'd be hard for me to say how many, but we could certainly look into that and get a better sense of what the numbers look like there. Uh, that's fine. I just wanted to confirm. I, I, I thought that it was probably likely, and I just wanted to get an idea about it. Tony, I, I yeah. have a question. Yeah. So these were, uh, the survey was only for the folks who did, take, who were able to work remotely, right? And initially, when you mentioned that because in, you know, a lot of the who gets to work remotely was left to the discretion of the manager, was there anything that you found in terms of productivity on that front, the ones who probably would have liked to have done remotely but didn't uh, done that? Was, I mean, did the HR have to do any kind of conflict interventions, reservation, conflict re uh, resolutions, or anything on that front? Uh, let, I'll give I have two answers Two answers to that. Uh, one is um, we have, since we started, done an analysis of every job. Uh, the business partners went out. We have a spreadsheet that is of every single job classification in every area of the company with a uh, explanation if the manager indicates that, that person cannot work remotely with a clear indication of why right what is the reason generally it's direct patient care and so while we weren't able to do that before we started people moving off we have since done that and that allows us to make an assessment of whether a manager appears to be doing so unreasonably or whether there's a solid rationale for them requiring the person to come to work so that's how we dealt with that part of it to you, directly to your question there have been a couple of areas where employees have indicated they believe they can work remotely and they want to, uh, but the manager disagrees. And that's there's one particular area in care delivery where there's a, there was a clear disagreement and there was conflict. Mm -hmm. And some of the employees decided they weren't going to come to come to work. And so there have been interventions there uh, because while the employee obviously has an opinion on this, the, the person responsible for delivery of care to the patients um, is held accountable for that. And they were clear in their assessment of it that those people needed to be there because it required a direct in-person interaction with patients that could not be delivered in a remote fashion. Uh, and there, there was a lot of tension around it. That, that's the l largest interaction we've had to have regarding this. There have been other individuals who've indicated that they believe they can work remotely and should be able to work remotely. And they're fair, they're fair sort of assertions on behalf of the employee because that's their perspective. Then we've had to have a look at it with the manager and again look at the classification. What is the work being performed? You know, what I would also say is, you know, without people being in the office, those in the office have maybe picked up other work and it leads you to make an assessment. Do we need the exact structure as we've had historically? Right. Uh, and I think that will lead to some potential transitions. I don't know what they will look like yet. I think we're going to have to work through them a step at a time and we certainly don't want to get ahead of ourselves. Mm -hmm. 
but I think it makes people look at work in, in, in different ways. The, going back, it's not directly related to this, to the leaves. There are some areas where there are a lot of leaves and people worked heroically those that were on site where we didn't have a lot of travelers to support. And they also identified ways of being more efficient and effective at getting the job done. And so there are certain improvements that have come about because of this. That's not without real stress, but I think it's forced us to look at work in different ways and we'll probably make adjustments because of that. Mm -hmm. um, but numbers have not been as large as I would have expected um, in Kenny in terms of uh, the interactions and uh, HR having to be heavily involved. But there have been a couple of areas where there's been real tension. Okay. No, that, that's good to know. And once you have the job role classification, that then it becomes very clear to everybody which ones cannot. Yeah. I think Delvecchio is going to add something about this other providers. Uh, actually, just uh, thank you, Tony. Uh, but just um, uh, context, I, I think it's clear, but just, uh, just to, out of abundance of uh, uh, precaution, both for the uh, all of these responses, whether they are uh, I just go back to the, the context. Most of the people who uh, responded to the survey uh, uh, and the, the responses we're looking at are, are folks in administrative classification. So just want to kind of remind us of that as we go through the different uh, pieces of the responses here. Um, uh, but the other part is whether they are administrative or, or, or clinical, um, the experiences range from complete um, uh, remote working uh, for, for, for uh, many of these individuals to a partial remote working. So um, uh, just important to point out that um, some portion of these individuals aren't, um, work, they weren't completely converted over to work, uh, working from home. Uh, some of them uh, were on rotating schedules where some of them had to have some form of office presence uh, uh, by virtue of kind of the collective work of a department or unit uh, that was just able to be tailored and paired back in such a way that everyone didn't need to come into the office all the time. So just context too, as we look at all of this, is it, this is, uh, and, and, and as Tony said, the assessment we did uh, was, um, it was kind of a three, you had three choices from all the managers. All of the work could be done from home uh, um, as they looked at the scope of responsibilities. Uh, part of it could be done from uh, home and none of it could be done from home. And if the response was only partial or none, that's when we asked justification because we were trying to, lend the bend of the lens to if it can be done from home uh we want to look at how what what it would take to make that happen so so it wasn't a you know we're pushing everything out it was a we want to approach it from that mindset and then we want you to tell us under what circumstances or which uh, roles that doesn't either make sense partially or at all yeah, yeah thanks Del Becchio. and I, I think i you know the way i would ask the question is i it was interesting when I first moved to this country, um, a friend back in England asked me what the difference between California and England is. And in England, people would ask the question, why would you want to do that? And in California, I've always seen it as, why not? Right? And so I think that's really the question we've been asking the managers. Why would this person not be able to work from home as opposed to why would you allow them to work from home? So reframing that lens uh, to really ask the question that helps us assess is there a reason you couldn't do this? Not why would you? And I think that helps managers think a little bit more clearly. It may take people time to get on board. And that's, you know, healthcare is a very traditional business. And so I don't expect people to be immediately comfortable with it. I think we're going to have to work our way through it. And we, we will undoubtedly hit some bumps in the road individually and as a group. But I think we can work through them and it will be a better environment because of it. And we will be more competitive, I think. Just eliminating people's commutes 
um, quite frankly, it can allow them to be more productive, not forcing them, uh, you know, to spend that time away from family or from work, quite frankly, when they could be productive. So I, I think it, it's going to be a better environment once we've done this. But we have to know it's going to be available to everyone. Healthcare is predominantly still an in-person business, and so there's going to be a portion more employees that are going to have to be in person. Um, Tony, can I just say, I think in my other experiences right now, I, I would just call out that working from home is a skill. And um, it really does take some time and practice. And I just want to emphasize that because I, I'm glad you have the resources for the, you know, using uh, video chat and video meetings and all of that. But it is a real skill. And, and I think that we need to kind of be patient about this a little bit. Um, and it's not for everyone. It's not everybody that's going to be comfortable. But if you survey uh, all those companies that have had historically more flex uh, telecommute, um, people will tell you that it's, it's, it's a skill set and not everybody's you know, going to be comfortable with it. So I think we have to be really careful about our uh, facilities management. And I think we may have the flexibility to create uh, what you see in so many high-tech uh, companies, these pods where people come when they have to, they yeah. leave when they uh, can. But Absolutely. the idea of an office is just non-existent in some of these buildings. I mean, you have these massive buildings with massive areas where it's just plug and play, as they say. Yeah. So uh, we will evolve, but let's give people some time. I think that's the message I want to give. I, um, sorry, Trustee Hernandez, I, I want to express appreciation for the message. Uh, uh, um, this is going to take us a while, even if we didn't, if, if we if we wanted to. It may it may seem like we're pushing uh, fast in some respects, uh, in others, uh, 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 people are are hungry for clarity because they want uh, to be able to continue this. Um, most people, as Tony mentioned, we relax the rules uh, out of an urgency to. Um, uh, making people, uh, you know, to support uh, social distancing and create safe environments for folks uh, and supporting uh, some of the challenges we talked about in the last presentation in terms of uh, people's personal uh, as, uh, challenges and otherwise. So so as this has gone on, and obviously we're still without a vaccine um, uh, and, um, um, you know, uh, we're having spread and other sorts of challenges um, uh, and we have challenges within our facilities, we are looking for a permanent solution, but it, it's taking us a while to do the analysis. And quite honestly, um, as he'll get to here, it's going to take us a while uh, possibly to look at uh, what resources we would have to uh, supply. And we may have limitations in terms of our ability to invest in supporting it, even, even if we thought all the other barriers uh, or parameters work for individuals, our ability to um, you know, secure equipment, uh, if you have to look at ergonomics, uh, um, and all those sorts of things. Uh, uh, it's, it's not for the scale of the workforce we're talking about here. It's something that will likely happen quickly. So we'll, we'll, we'll keep your, your admonishment uh, uh, and try to use that the calibration uh, because this will probably take a while. We just wanted to you know, understand it as quickly as possible. I, I thank, thanks, Del Vecchio, and thank you, Trustee Hernandez. I think you're right. I think we've created that resource page um, and we're developing training for managers. There's some information not in this um, report I'm doing for you today that, that contextualizes some of what managers are asking for and it is additional training. 
is understanding how to manage both self and staff in a remote environment. Now, the web page is a, you know, I don't want to say dirty. It was a lot of work for the team to pull it together, but they put it up very quickly, and we're going to evolve from that. To Del Vecchio's point, you know, we're doing this now. We have a large number of people doing it. So I think it's going to be an evolution from this point rather than revolution because people are out there. We have to decide what we need to pull back on and what we need to continue on as we work our way forward. Um, the slide in front of you is the manager experience, and it's pretty similar in responses to the employee experience. Uh, again, I, I won't belabor the point by speaking to every response, but you see the majority are agreeing strongly agree as it relates to their experience. The scores are not as high as the employees, though. So managers as a group have not enjoyed this or been as positive about it. And as you saw that in the number, 99, 99.5% of employees wanted to continue, about 90% of managers did. Um, and, you know, I miss the social interaction in the workplace. You know, that, that's a significant number of people. And I've asked our wellness team to work with our learning and development, learning and development team to work at how do we bridge that gap. So I think to Maria's point about employees learning this and evolving into this, this potential social isolation of it is real. And we need to continue people being part of a team and also monitor their wellness. We asked some questions that, again, are not in here, and I'll share it later today, about those types of feelings, because I was concerned when we did the survey that we don't miss out on the fact there is a level of isolation here when you don't go to a workplace every day, particularly when that has been what you do every day for, for some of our employees for 20 or 30 years. And we've just got to be cautious about that and keep an eye on it and work out how do we continue to integrate those people with the rest of the staff and ensure that they feel part of a team and we don't lose that, that part of working at AHS that's very important to people. Uh, and so it's, it's something that we're going to continue to monitor and keep a close eye on. Again, the giving up of the cube or the office, here it's even less supportive. But again, we still lean positive that people be willing to do that. And again, I think your point is valid about our ability to reduce the amount of space that we lease right now. I don't think we're leaping into anything. I think it's an ongoing assessment as to how much we need as we rotate people through and whether they come in sometimes. Um, we'll make an, that will tell us how much space we really need for the long term. So this is specific to the manager's experience with staff and how they felt about it. Um, you know, again, between neutral and strongly agree is where people heavily are in terms of their experience of managing staff um, remotely. And so whether this is them, uh, sorry, this is very focused on the managed experience with their staff. And so not as positive a result, but still pretty heavily positive overall when I look at these results. You know, most of them are very comfortable uh, or comfortable with their staff working remotely. Uh, they are communicating regularly. Uh, again, Zoom is the predominant method, uh, almost Zoom to death. In fact, sometimes I, my one-on-ones are Zoom when it could be a conference call or something else if the person doesn't have video. But that has become the norm. And I think in many regards, it allows you to interact with someone visually. And that's a positive thing rather than just a phone call where, again, you can become more isolated. Um, they think they can effectively communicate with their staff. Uh, and that they can support them, or sorry, supervise them effectively. You know, there are, there are norms in the industry like coding uh, that in many organizations are offsite already, even though they're non-exempt employees. 
because you can set clear standards in terms of the amount of work that's being performed. The cost of living in the Bay Area is very high. And so a lot of people traveling from Sacramento and other areas further east in the Bay, when I previously worked at Stanford or even as far south as Sunnyvale, people were commuting four hours plus to those jobs. And over time, they all became remote in nature. And so it becomes very difficult to recruit people to work on site because of the location that they live. And so there are clearly jobs, even non-exempt jobs, where we have clear metrics that can measure the work, manage the work effectively. Uh, for others, it's more nebulous in terms of the work. It may be project-based or it may be responsiveness. There it's a little harder, but again, we can work our way through that. And I think it's going to be a journey for us and we're going to get to a place where a couple of years from now we'll look back and not understand why we hadn't done this sooner. Uh, and I think it will become the norm. So what's next? Uh, complete the analysis of the feedback um, so we can close gaps. As I mentioned, and Del Vecchio uh, emphasized, um, we asked questions about where managers were very clear people could not work on site or it was part of the time. So now we have a comprehensive assessment of those jobs with feedback from the managers and their leader as to the supportiveness of that. There are some areas that today we can't have off-site. Uh, there are call centers where we don't actually have the technology uh, to route the calls to someone's home. Uh, that's true in HR. It's one of my areas, and we're working with IT to see how we might solve that and look at alternatives. But we don't have the capacity today to support it. But it doesn't mean we're going to stop looking at it. And so, again, this is a moment in time, and it'll continue to evolve, and I think we'll move forward in areas where we're not able to support it off-site. Um, assess the total uh, additional costs. So uh, people right now uh, may have two, two screens at work, like I'm, I have in front of me right now. They may feel they need that or they may need that at home. The question is, do they take the screens from work or do we provide additional assets to them? Uh, people, as I mentioned earlier, are using their own computers. And I think from a security standpoint, we'll probably move to AHS assets and we have some um, provisioned uh, PCs right now that the IT department has and they're built, and we may move to those. Then we've got to work out what the support structure is for that. Does someone from IT go and set it up in the individual's home? Uh, do they make sure it's all working? Those are the, the elements we have to you know, build out if it's not just sending someone a laptop and telling them to turn it on as it would be in a technology company. So we've got to work our way through some of those. And then we're seeking feedback from the representative staff in the union. We have a policy. We want to work through that. At the end of this, we want one policy. And that's what we want to be clear on. As you know and you've heard at nauseum, we have 18 bargaining units. We need one policy to administer across all of those bargaining units and our own representative staff. We can't have different policies. It's going to be too difficult to administer, particularly for the managers and leaders who have people in multiple bargaining units. It's going to cause friction and difficulty for them to, to do the right thing. And so we need a single policy that we can use for everyone. And that, that's the plan that we have. So let me stop there for a second. I know I've been talking a great deal, so uh, to see if you have any additional questions about it before we move on. Committee members, any questions? Now, this is kind of universal. I think as soon as people start working from home, the general, um, there'll be some for whom it'll be hard to do blur those lines, work in home and get balance, but most uh, prefer that and like the pod system is um, 
is is now the default in you know no designated desks for folks to have like people find a spot so tony that was a great presentation i do have um a comment and a question my comment is that um it seems well my suggestion is that we, I, I would think that we would be seeing some cost savings from this as well because we won't need as many um many safe, public safety staff custodial staff um, um dietary people to for the cafeterias for employees etc things like that as well as the um the reduction in in the number of um offices available but of course that will be reflect that will also be addressed we'll have to be addressing the um the employee um physical distancing so it's kind of timely by not having as many people there you'll have more space to distance for the people that are there um so i, I think that we should be able to see some savings maybe not maybe not a bottom line savings but um overall definitely savings to employees and and employee um employee employees who are happier at work but also possibly some savings for um facilities and things like that and finally my question is you mentioned stanford briefly is this are you aware of other organizations other acute care systems like kaiser or um summit or others that are having more remote work than um especially in california i don't imagine it's probably that common elsewhere but in california are you seeing it becoming much more common or yeah um, yeah, yeah i mean i colleagues from stanford and other hospitals um that i talk to on a fairly regular basis um the social distancing push many of them to have people work remotely uh, not just administrative staff but some clinical staff i know at kaiser um some of the providers were working remotely and just doing telehealth like our providers so that's happening because of this whether that continues for the long term is is yet to be seen um stanford has been doing it for a long time because the cost of um facilities in palo alto simply became prohibitive for healthcare providers they pushed their hr department out from palo alto to the east bay and then they pushed them to be remote because they simply didn't want to pay rent on space anymore so a large number of those employees became remote employees uh, and it's really just a cost from their perspective a cost saving measure that there was some benefit but they they've got to come into some locations at some time to your earlier point on the cost savings it'll be hard to see i don't think it will be for some time it may exist but if it's a space like fairmont we vacate we're not paying rent on that already so there's not really a savings there if it's from somewhere else there are potential savings but again i think it will take a significant period of time for this to to flesh out because for those in the office i think dovecchio mentioned earlier people are coming in sometimes and rotating and so we need to maintain the space and for right now social distancing when they're in the office so it may play out to a savings for us but it's it's going to be a while i do think the savings to the employer significant not paying for gas not traveling to work that time whether it's by public transport or otherwise and and at a particularly stressful time in covid-19 that that peace of mind of not being that is actually just valuable to people and i think if we can support that then it's a good thing thank you so uh next i'm going to run through um a brief update on our labor negotiations uh so you know where we are 
Um, obviously, uh, you're aware of our multiple bargaining units because we speak about it frequently. Uh, but I'm going to go just through three slides to let you know where we are in terms of our current status in terms of negotiations. Um, so I'll begin at the beginning uh, with ACME, our management and professional union. Uh, we, begin a re we have begun a reopener uh, with them. Uh, they're setting dates right now. Uh, and so we, while any increase is effective to June uh, of um, this year, which is when the reopener was due, we haven't agreed to anything at this point in time. So we're engaged in negotiation with them purely on salary, not the remainder of the contract. Uh, BTC, so Tony, I'm sorry, just yeah. um, to clarify, this is the reopener that the union is allowed to reopen. This is not our reopener. Right? Yeah, so and well, explain how that works. Thanks. I can Yeah, I can. So the the only term of the contract that is up for negotiation now is salary or at the economics. Uh, and each year of the ACMEA contract, uh, June, they can request uh, an economic change to the contract, really around salaries. And our our option is to agree or disagree with that position, um, you know, and to negotiate it. But the rest of the contract's not open. They would come forth with a proposal, and we would obviously be responsive to that proposal in terms of what we felt we were able to do. Um, BTC, Building Trends Council, we've been negotiating for a long time. They recently had a change in their lead negotiator. I think uh, while Obrey had served them well for many, many years, uh, the transition sort of allowed a new relationship to form between Athena on our side uh, and their lead negotiator, and I think we're going to make significant traction in that area pretty soon. So I, I'm very positive about it, even though it's been open for a long time. Just the change in dynamic with a different person isn't a reflection necessary on the individual, but sometimes that change in dynamic at the table can be helpful, and I, I'm hopeful that that's, that's going to be the case here. Uh, the, they've been incredibly respectful at the table. Uh, they're a good group to work for, despite the, the, the contract being open for a long time. And, and I'm confident that we're making progress on that. CIR, which is our interns and residents, is closed right now. It doesn't open until 2022, so there's nothing on the table there at this point in time. Um, Park Ridge and South Shore CNA, which is a tiny unit, 27 nurses, uh, is not open right now. Uh, CNA at Almeida is, in fact, open uh, right now. You know we've been negotiating for that some time. I'll jump to the next slide. Uh, CNA at San Leandro is also open. So uh, we've been negotiating for that for a period of time. We have had a number of positive exchanges in terms of narrowing the issues and signed a number of TAs recently. And so I think that's going in the right direction. And the differences between us are narrowing. Uh, I think they have agreed uh, to some of our proposals, and likewise, we've agreed to some of theirs. And so it feels like it's narrowing. I'm very optimistic about, about moving forward with that contract in terms of the the basic proposals on the table. So uh, that is moving in the right direction. Uh, the two ILWU units uh, we're negotiating, they have moved um, quite slowly. The changes proposed by us have been less than in some of the other contracts, but they just have moved quite slowly. Again, there's been a change at the table recently in their lead negotiator, and I think that's going to have a positive effect. We seem to be moving in the right direction in both of those negotiations as well. Uh, OPEIU is open. Uh, that's moving along reasonably. Uh, there, there's nothing particularly at issue there. Um, Local 39 is not currently open. 
um, and the three SEIU chapters, which is the, the majority of our represented staff uh, overall, uh, all of those opened in March or in April, sorry, yeah, uh, March, and we've been negotiating since. Uh, we've been proposing uh, multiple sessions, um, and they've been accepting about one session a month so far, uh, and so we are requesting that they um, are able to negotiate more frequently. There, there are other things going on. There could be other dynamics that we're not aware of. There may be stretch on the staffing side, but we're asking for more sessions at the table so we can progress at a faster pace with, with those groups. Tony, um, um, can you just comment and, and um, re regarding the, the negotiations and the scheduling of negotiations, is it in, in your opinion, you know, or, or in the, the research um, that's available throughout um, the HR world is it is it beneficial to to continue negotiating or what isn't it to um, both parties usually to both parties advantage to um, come to agreement it, 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 but it may be that there's it, it it's different based on what the the environment the especially the economic environment is it may be that when there's um, uncertainty in the economy that there is a tendency to to delay closure of the contract. I'm just curious about that, if you have a sec to answer that. Yeah, I, I won't talk about research because I'd have to go and do some research. I, I can talk about my own experiences here and elsewhere. I think it, it's in both parties' interest to get a contract, you know, because you operate under the terms of those of, of that contract for the employees and for the, for the organization. And it's good for everyone to be very clear what the rules of the road are and the policies are that relate to the employees and management. I think that's just a, a good way for us to do business and for us all to be clear. I think um, from time to time you're trying to make changes and there are all kinds of dynamics at play in a negotiation. That is, while the, the, the professional union representatives may understand the need for a change, they have to get the employees there. The employees may not understand the reasoning for that change. They may not, they may not um, have as uh, a level of understanding of labor law or what you're or what you're actually trying to achieve as some of the professional people at the table. That's not to suggest the employees are not capable. It just isn't what they do every day. And so sometimes it takes time to get there. Um, I think in to your point about the, the economics, I think it can uh, lead to stretching out of negotiations uh, if a union thinks something dramatic is going to change and so and a problem is going to be solved and there's going to be an influx of money, you know that can lead them to try and hold out, uh, uh, hold out and hope that something is going to happen that effectively allows them to get what they want or need for their members, uh, whether that's a reality or not, because you know unions are elected and the members they may believe the union's going to get them something, the union may have committed to something, and when that's not the reality, it's very difficult. Uh, the union's stuck in the middle. Their job's to represent the members, and when the economic winds change and the economy's struggling and an organization's struggling, it's not so easy for the union to sell to their members a deal that they lower than they thought they were going to get. You know, th those are just realities, even if, if everyone understands that accepting it can be very difficult because... Um, the members can decide they want to change a union in certain circumstances. And so I think Thank the dynamics are in. Yeah, thanks. I, I, I think they just. Go ahead, it sorry. It seems like, like you, um, 
Well, the contracts, there's, as you say, there's many contracts. More contracts are open than closed, but most of those just opened up in March just recently. But there's three, I think, that have been open since 2018. And I just, I was just kind of, you know, trying to figure out why that would be, why it wouldn't be really, why everyone um, on the on the union side, as well as I know that you are, it would be working really hard to, to close those up. Yeah, and, and sometimes that's that, that's hard to say. You know, one of the things that we've been pursuing that we've talked about in public um, is AHS's desire to be a system. And when you attempt to be a system, you're looking for similar language, you know, in the contract so you can effectively manage. It's not always easy to get a, a group that developed their own separate and distinct contract and language that they control to agree to something simply because it serves the organization. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try and pursue it. It doesn't mean that it's not the appropriate thing to do, but it's not always easy. And so I'm, you know, I'm respectful of both the union's role and the people who negotiate on behalf of the union. Sometimes it's hard. You know, even if they agree, it can be hard. Um, but our job is to keep working at it, keep negotiating, get it narrowing the differences to the point that there's nothing left to talk about. And that's what we, we will continue to try and do in an attempt to get an agreement that works for both the employees and for HS, because there's no value to us in a contract that works solely on behalf of the employer. If the employees are unhappy, we can't do our business. It just doesn't work. You know, Things have to be a win-win. That doesn't mean you're going to get everything you wanted, but it has to work for both of us. Otherwise, you have unhappy employees, and that does not lead to good patient care. So I, I think we're going to keep, it's not the right word, but slogging away at it, because I think it, it's hard work, and Athena's team are doing really good work here. And I respect the union's job to try and get the best deal they can for the members. And we're in tough economic times. And we're going to do everything we can to get a deal and keep working on it. Um, so thank, thank you for the question, Tracy. Um, so UFED is closed right now, um, not open um, to 2021. That's the position union. Uh, not open UHW at Almeda. We, we agreed a deal with them fairly recently. And then... Uh, UHW at Park Bridge uh, has a way to reopen up 2020-2021. Uh, and so we'll start talking to them in about dates in the not-too-distant future. So um, our objective here is, you know, was just really to give you an update, but, you know, we are working on these contracts. Our objective is to get the contract solved. It's in our interest and the union's interest, I think, and our employees' interest, most importantly. Um, and we're going to keep working through each and every one of these until we get to resolution or narrow the issues so closely that there's nothing left to talk about, and then we'll, we'll take it from that. Um, so the last thing on the agenda is our dashboard, and I'll go through this uh, and see if you have, if you have questions on it. I'm trying to keep us on track for time. Um, so time to fill. Um, in the third quarter, it, it was 52 days. Uh, fourth quarter, it spiked up to 60. I have the, the data for the entire year, and it's just over 52 days. And so particularly in the current circumstances, I think that's a great thing. Um, you know, the team have worked very hard. We've filled over 1,000 positions this year in the recruitment department. There are about five recruiters in there. That's a lot of recruitment. Uh, and while I'm not happy with our turnover, and we'll talk about that in a moment, the recruitment team's done a really good job in a very difficult environment. You know, we've been talking about our financial situation, the finance and full board. That makes it a difficult environment in which to recruit. 
but this team working with the managers worked incredibly hard and, and good, done good work in this area. Uh, onboarding's going well. There's not a significant shift in our current uh, employee demographics. Locally hired, we're still at about 64% of people who live in the county. So no real shifts there in terms of the applications um, and, the, the, or more importantly, the makeup of, of our total workforce. Um, workers' comp days have gone down. Uh, some of the uh, loss here relates to there's been a significant increase in total productive hours, and that feeds into the calculation. Uh, the number of injuries is down, and I'd like to say that's a great win, but quite frankly, it's likely a reflection of the number of people on leave and people working remotely, not being in the workplace to have a fall. And so that may be, to Trustee Jensen's earlier point about cost savings, that is a potential savings, although we're going to have to keep a close eye on ergonomic issues uh, with people working at home offices and not being in the workplace. And so that's an assessment that we're doing. We've got a relationship with a, a vendor that makes those assessments, so we feel pretty good about that. Uh, but a reduction in injuries in the last quarter is seen as going in the right direction. That could be a whole other topic on what what people can claim when they're working at home, you know, versus when they're out doing something on at work on behalf of their employer. That would be an interesting thing to understand yeah. better. Yeah, if I might you know, jump in here, you know, actually, you know, Trustee Jensen, that's a pretty interesting point. You know, I, I sit on the uh, the board of, uh, you know, the Beta Council, which is the governing board for Beta R Insurer, and we had a fairly robust discussion at our last board meeting, actually, about the, you know, the impact of, you know, the pandemic on a variety of the insurance coverages. But the one with regard to workers' comp, you know, was the most interesting, you know, because it sort of, you know, flips in a variety of directions, you know, where there'll be fewer claims because there's fewer people in the work, you know, force lifting and, and slipping and falling and, and you know, uh, all those other types of things. Or will there be just a different variety of claims, as Tony points out, you know, repetitive stress injuries, you know, because people, you know, are, you know, lying on the couch, you know, working on a laptop, you know, that type of thing. And so it's put, you know, the insurance industry in, you know, real difficulty in terms of trying to assess what it should be doing with regard, you know, to, you know, actuarial information and, you know, how they're setting rates because there's a lot of information that sort of su suggests that, well, this could reduce, you know, risks and claims and then others, though, that, you know, as soon as you're looking at some of those prevention things, then you say, okay, well, now will we have more and more uh, expensive claims, you know, because, you know, essentially, you know, for the most part, you know, COVID has been, you know, declared uh, or, or designated, you know, automatically work-related, you know, um, for uh, many employees. So it's, it is a rather large and robust conversation that's probably not going to be resolved, you know, to any, you know, conclusion or with any, uh, you know, definitiveness uh, in the near future. Thanks, Mike. That's really helpful. And to your point, it, kind of to my earlier point about cost savings, I, 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 um, I wonder and I imagine that there will be some some liability cost savings as well, unless it goes to your point in the in the opposite direction. But um, as you say, employers have much more ability to ensure the safety of people when they're on the employer's site and under the management of direct direct supervision of someone who also is at that site, so. Yeah, I, I think that's 
that's very fair, and I think Maestro will we will talk about it more at an, a little later there because it is an interesting topic. If if workers' comp is something you find interesting, uh, which for people more like me it is, and uh, Mike obviously finds interesting because he's on the board of Beta, and so it's, it's a it's a you know I I think there's going to be a lot of change, uh, particularly in healthcare around this with the remote working because it's new in healthcare again. It's a very let me dismiss it, but a stodgy industry in making those transitions. And so we're going to work our way through this and we will see some significant changes. Um, in terms of turnover, uh, we've seen a reduction uh, of annualized turnover to about 11.3% in the last quarter, which is positive. Some of it reflect is reflective, again, I think of people on leaves and remote working. The first year turnover remains both in nursing and non-nursing the biggest issue for us, first and second year turnover. I had a long conversation with our chief nurse about it uh, this week, um, and we have some plans afoot, and I won't talk about them now, but we think we can make some inroads into this area. I think she's making some real inroads into the people that work as leaders in nursing that are going to substantially help us in this area in terms of having the right, right leadership skills and the right mentorship skills to make sure we're helping employees, uh, and also that we're selecting the right employees. And by right, I mean people who understand our environment, who are positive about working here, and that we support to be successful. Uh, because I think there clearly is still an issue in this area. And to my earlier point, we're recruiting a lot of people, and that's costing us money. And we're losing people on the back end of this, uh, and we're losing them heavily in nursing in that first and second year. And if we can put a stop on that, it's, it will help us shift the environment. There are two key elements to that in my mind. One is the selection process. How do we select people? And then the secondly, how do we onboard and ensure that they're effective in that first 90 to 160 days? Because once we get beyond that period, we're going to have a greater level of the individual sticking with the organization. Turnover in healthcare in nursing is very high in the first year. But, and I don't think we're going to solve that for the industry here, but I do think we can solve our problem here. And there are just some interventions that we have to have that are going to help us in this regard. Um, last is, um, oh, sorry, two, a couple more slides. So this is uh, reasons for leaving year over year. So voluntary separated out from involuntary. Uh, you see on the voluntary, it's predominantly retirement and shift and schedule. Shift in schedule is predominantly driven by seniority in unionized positions. Since most of our turnover happens to be in clinical or unionized positions, simply because 92% of the employees are represented, we don't control that shift in schedule. It's based on seniority. And so that remit, those, those remain the two largest items, retirement and shift in schedule in terms of voluntary. Um, on the involuntary, it's either layoff or job elimination. Um, and that has been over the last couple of years. And so we see that this is the feedback the individual gives, that why they've left for a reason other than uh, under their own volition, it's because there's been a reduction in force of some kind. It may be small or large. They could be bumping. They may have not been the subject of the reduction, but ultimately may be the, the individual impacted by it. And so those shifts have not been substantial in the last few years. It's the same type of reasons. Um, the retirements are heavy. I, I spoke with a team earlier today. We, I've got a much more detailed set of information that we're working on to help us drive in to the turnover issue here. Uh, and I'll share more of that at the next 
uh, HR committee meeting because I think it's a valuable piece for us to talk about, both from a why people are leaving and also the demographics of those people who are leaving, what it's driving individually. So we're working on that right now so it's it goes beyond this to something more meaningful so we can see what it looks like. Uh, because I think there are there are clear interventions we can make in this organization that are going to help us on the turnover side. I, I, had, a, I had a quick question here, uh, Tony. On the involuntary terminations, why do we have such a large number of no, no responses? Wouldn't the, the manager know why people were terminated? No, this is, this is purely from um, the Work Institute. So these are exit interviews, Ross. Every employee is contacted at a minimum or maximum three times. Uh, they're called at home on the, the contact that we have available for them so they can provide feedback. And we get verbatim responses to questions from this grouping. And this is the response that they gave to us. Part of that larger, uh, larger set of data I was talking about was to pull from Lawson the reason code that we have and mm -hmm. then marry it up with us so we see both what our reason is, then the employee's feedback, and then some more substantial data with demographic breakdown so we can really dig into this in a way that's meaningful. The, the thing, uh, and I'll think about how to present it, and I'll talk to Christy Jensen about how we you know, deal with it, it can become overwhelming in terms of the, the various data elements of it. So I want to make it meaningful and useful and not just raw data because at that point it's just a lot of it. It's a lot of numbers and I don't, I want it to be useful for us to have the dialogue. So we'll talk more about what's going to be helpful in that regard because we're doing the work internally and obviously you need to know what that work is and be able to see it and guide us and provide advice on it. And Tony, I have a question for you about that slide. Yeah. Well, am, am I to understand that in the involuntary uh, terminations for last year, we were at a total of 143, and we've already surpassed that, and we're at half the year, or is this? Uh... It's fiscal year. Ah. It was a fiscal year, rather than calendar years. Okay. Uh, so it was 91, 143, 177 for the fiscal year 20, which finished in June, on June 30th. Okay, thanks. So yeah, we did. We definitely surpassed it, uh, but it's in the the county. And one of the things that will be useful is to look at the, the total population to know is that reflective of the fact we got larger, or is it just right. an increase in, in the amount of people being terminated? Yeah, got it. Um, so this is our EO one data. Um, I'm going to ask your indulgence. I'll go through this quickly because I've asked our HRS team to break it down into tabular form because I just don't think this is helpful. Sorry, um, I was just going to say in response to that last question, I, I think some of that um, uh, also, you know, the, obviously this was the fiscal year in which we went live in Sapphire, and I think we experienced some turnover con connected to that, which is a uh, common practice in organizations when you uh, when you switch uh, uh, EHR. So I, I don't know that, but um, it wouldn't surprise me if a, a, a percentage of that was connected to uh, clinical uh, staff that we may have lost. Uh, relative to uh, converting to a new uh, EHR. Yeah, I think that uh, that very, uh, I would say on the retirement side, why we saw it pick up is probably reflective of that, that shift to an EHR and whether I want to learn that entire new way of doing things or that workflow if I'm at, right at the end of my career and I have that option to retire. So I think that, that played a significant role. Um, as I said, this is our EO1 data, so it shows the breakdown, but I, you know, the more I look at it, the less useful I think it is. Uh, you see that we have a much larger female population than male population. 
Um, you see that when you look at it, the majority are professionals and technicians. Um, you see that we have a fairly broad population. Uh, we have a relatively large number of Asian employees, white employees, African-American employees, and the Latino and Hispanics in, in the groups are underrepresented based on the, if I was to look at the county data. Uh, those are the broad things that we can see here, but we can't see a lot more. So I, we're working on ways to make this more effective. We're looking at different tables that will show year over year that shift, because I think right now this gives you the snapshot on the next slide, which is the previous year. It's a little hard to compare, so we're trying to look at ways to make it a more effective comparison for you. Um, and for us, actually. And so again, similarly, we don't see uh, massive shifts. The shifts are predominantly, if I go back, we've got a larger employee population in 20 than we did in 19. The general uh, demographics remain fairly un un unaltered across the board. And the same is true of 18. Again, the entire population grew. Um, and over time, we've become slightly more female than male. But again, the demographics overall have not shifted considerably over the period of the last three years. And, and Tony, how many total now? What's the broad total number? We're, we're about 5,000 employees, okay. and I'm saying about up and down. That includes um, SN employees, full and part-time employees. Okay. So the whole group. some people don't work here very often, but that's the total number of heads that we have. Um, so that that was the last slide. Uh, so I'll. I will, if you have no further questions, I'll hand it back to Tracy uh, to pick up. And I'll stop sharing my screen. Thanks, Tony. Um, I think that, that we, we've come to the end of the agenda. If anybody has any, I know that we have a mic to report out on um, the investment committee. If there's a report, you want to do that right now? Uh, certainly. I. Uh... I can probably pare this down to about 30 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> what? He's a funny guy. Uh, no, I think uh, because I do believe we missed it the last minute, uh, the last meeting. Uh, just a couple of things I wanted to share with you. So, you know, as you know, the, uh, the committee meets uh, on a quarterly basis. And uh, so our last meeting was on May 21st. And, it was actually, you know, interesting, you know, from the standpoint that it, you know, that meeting basically looked at, you know, data within the plans, you know, through the end of um, March of 2000, uh, of 2020. So, you know, basically that, you know, meant that, you know, the markets had already reflected, you know, some of the wild volatility that had occurred, you know, beginning, uh, you know, towards the end of February, you know, into the first part of March. Uh, looking at, you know, what that meant, you know, for our uh, actual uh, plans and programs, you know, as you can well expect, you know, all of the market indices, you know, basically covering um, the, uh, the last three months, the last six months, and the last year were all underwater, uh, with the exception of, you know, fixed income securities, you know, bonds and the like. And so it was rather dramatic, you know, in terms of, you know, all of the um, market drops that had occurred, you know, there at the beginning of um, of uh, March, you know, basically, you know, were reflected there. What that meant, you know, for us, and let me see if I can 
actually uh, give you a, a sense of this here. Can you see anything? Okay. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you down here. So actually this I go this one here. So this is the uh, report that we received on our plans and you know we get these at each meeting and so as you can see here you know this area here basically like I said is the three month year to date in the one year is all affected by what happened at the beginning um, of the pandemic and as you can see here in the three five and ten year categories you know the the drastic difference between what you're looking at and so this is the broad market summary here um, this chart you know shows equities alone and so you it's you know rather rather dramatic that you have absolutely nothing above you know um, zero line there for that period of time uh, but then when you go and look at the fixed income market here you know it tells an entirely different you know story and that there were you know several you know well-performing uh, you know issues you know over this you know period you know both in the more recent you know past and going into the following future as well too so you know unfortunately you know we meeting in may it was difficult you know for us to really make any predictions about you know how this was all going to pay, play out uh in the future and i think that the the general sort of understanding is that we will continue to be waiting and seeing you know for a period of time you know, just by way of information, you know, one other thing I would show you uh, in this meeting, we did put two funds onto the watch list, or excuse me, we did actually uh, change two funds, you know, out of the plan based upon uh, their performance. And uh, it did, or when I was talking with someone about this, it did, you know, sort of prompt the question about, you know, how do we go about doing this? So, you know, one of the things that we do in our meetings is that we look at, you know, the performance of all of our funds. And uh, basically, I'll just pull up, you know, one of these tables here to give you a sense of. So we have this, you know, table which covers all of the funds, and it basically shows its performance, you know, going back several quarters. And the green, you know, box means that the uh, fund was performing according to standards during that period. The yellow means that it was placed on a watch list, you know, for that uh, period, uh, and then. You know, the uh, the red, you know, is when we actually, you know, remove a fund, you know, from uh, from the portfolio. And we have, you know, investment standard policies, which basically you know, dictate, you know, how long a fund can be on the watch list or, you know, how many checkboxes before we need to start, you know, looking to take it off. So, you know, just showing that this is one of the things that we do in each of our meetings. In terms of our actual uh, plan performance, you know, for our employees, um, you know, this is information that we have from um, our prudential plans. And I think the most, you know, telling thing we have here, uh, maybe I go back one there, is so you can see that, you know, the total participants, you know, you know increased uh, by about 200 uh, participants, you know, from uh, 2019 to 2020 here. Um, what is, you know, probably most interesting is when you come down here and look at, you know, the, the, the participant plan balances, you know, actually, 
you know, rose from 224 million to 233 million uh, over that one-year period. Generally speaking, you know, this information that we receive, and again, we receive it at all of our uh, meetings. It breaks information down, you know, typically, you know, according to age of participants, you know, because in with respect to retirement issues, you know, the, the point a person is in the cycle, you know, moving towards retirement is uh, significant. And then usually, you know, we track things according to, you know, a prudential uh, benchmark. So, for example, here, uh, this is a report on participation in Goldmaker. Um, and as you can see, it shows, you know, how many of the uh, the what client assets are in this gold maker program, which is you know essentially a tool that employees can use to assist them you know with self directed investment and so you know in 2019 28.9 percent of the folks you know uh, plan participants you know used gold maker ticked up slightly to 29.2 percent uh, in 2000 or you know 2020. Um, the and that's reflected in the the actual numbers who uh, were participating. But if you look down here, the prudential benchmark for participation in Goldmaker is, you know, 52.3, which means that, you know, our folks, you know, use this tool significantly less than other uh, clients in Prudential's portfolio. What this does in the course of the meeting is this is information that we look at that really sort of drives the discussion. And, you know, typically what we're looking at is what does this number mean? Uh, does it indicate, you know, an opportunity for, you know, education for our employees, you know, is there, you know, some particular significance there. But, you know, there's a robust, you know, uh, set of, you know, facts and figures that we receive each month, which allows us, you know, to look at, you know, everything that's happening within the plan, understand, you know, how, you know, the plan is working, you know, for our employees. So, you know, as we go down here, we basically look at all of these, and as I say, you know, we break these down by age groups. So we look at participant balances uh, according to age groups, you know, the relative uh, allocation of, uh, of their, uh, uh, their plan balances, distributions. Uh, and then we also look at things which happen within the plan. So um, we come down here a little bit further. We actually have some information, you know, which tells us um, – you know, basically uh, withdrawal information, and then we also, you know, spend a fair amount of time looking at loan utilization of the plan. So understanding, you know, how many employees are taking loans. Uh, again, this is broken down by uh, age brackets, you know, of course, to some extent, you know, loans being taken here in the 65 plus, you know, or probably a little bit, you know, more, perhaps loans being taken in other areas. Um, for you know, employees in younger wage groups because these folks are close to. You know, again, the question you know being raised is why is that happening, and is there something you know as a committee that we should be looking, you know, to work with staff on in terms of you know additional education uh, tools. So, so just wanted to give you a quick you know view of what typically happens uh, in our meetings. Like I say, the. Uh, uh, but one other thing that we uh, did in this meeting is we received a legislative update on those items that, you know, were occurring primarily related to the pandemic uh, that affected, you know, retirement plans uh, and the operation of retirement plans. And Tony, um, in his uh, first report, you know, spoke to the CARES Act, the provisions of the CARES Act that 
basically, you know, require, you know, certain, you know, uh, changes being offered to employees to help uh, mitigate the impact of the pandemic. So, you know, the uh, access to loans, access to, you know, uh, plan uh, <clears throat> funds, you know, related, you know, for, you know, COVID-related uh, reasons. Um, so our investment advisor, you know, spoke to us about that, sort of gave us a sense of how we, what we were doing to com and how that compared to other uh, organizations. The only other thing uh, of significance we talked about, uh, and I referred, you know, when I was going through the forms uh, to uh, the Goldmaker program, uh, and like I say, the Goldmaker program is a tool that people can use. They sort of, you know, go through a series of personal questions. How old are you? How much risk are you uh, inclined to accept? And, you know, once you enter all that information, it provides for you a series of potential options that you may want to consider, you know, for your investments. Um, and, you know, there are a variety of these types of programs, you know, out there. Um, and, you know, the folks from Prudential, you know, did report to us that, you know, there is a, uh, uh, a lawsuit which is, you know, currently uh, that has been filed, you know, against Prudential regarding the, uh, the Goldmaker program. You know, essentially, apparently, someone invests in the stock market and lost money, you know, believe it or not, you know, it was, um, so yes, <laughs> looks of horror across the board is, um, but, you know, they were doing, you know, their due diligence, you know, to disclose to us that that litigation had occurred. It's not, they, you know, considered in the category of nuisance litigation, you know, we on the committee talked about, you know, the significance of that and what it should mean for us and determined that, you know, there was, you know, nothing really for us to do. You know, the goal maker is, you know, but one of the options available to employees, you know, uh, within the website on the platform. There was nothing to suggest that there's anything, you know, wrong with Goldmaker or different with Goldmaker as opposed to any other investment advice that they might be receiving. So, um, but other than that, those were the things. We'll meet again in the next quarter, which I think will be, you know, quite interesting because at that point, you know, we'll be receiving data from through the end of June, which is, you know, sort of into the first lull, if you will, of the pandemic. And so I think it might be interesting to see, you know, what that has meant uh, for the overall market and, and what sort of, um, you know, clarity that the investment folks might have uh, up to that point based upon, you know, having six months almost of data to uh, to look at in terms of the pandemic effects. So, okay. so other than that, there's any questions. While you were talking, I was looking at the market at, at March 31st and then at June 30th. And it's, uh, we, we picked the absolute bottom of the market when we had the meeting. And it's, uh, uh, the Dow Jones is up 1,800 points and the uh, NASDAQ is up 2,200 points. So it's like 10% higher than it was at March 31st. But in a timing. Oh, yeah, I, I suspect that this is going to be, you know, pretty much the same as, you know, the um, the meeting in the first quarter of 2019 and the meeting in the second quarter of 2019, the, the big drop off in December 2018. So, um, but, you know, it, it's my understanding that apparently, you know, that, um, you know, it, it has been proven that the, uh, um, you know, proven beyond actually this shadow of a doubt that, you know, the, the stock market, you know, will go up or down. So I guess this is playing out. So any other questions? I actually have a question, um, and it may be for Tony or for you, Mike. Did, uh, aren't there some um, relaxation of requirements for borrowing from um, from your retirement account? And have we seen act more activity since the um, that change happened? 
Yes, so that's the provision under the CARES Act uh, that, you know, basically for COVID-related, you know, reasons, you know, it uh, uh, increases the amount of money that an employee can, you know, obtain a loan, you know, the lower of $100,000 or the uh, uh, or 100% of their fund assets, you know, which is substantially higher than what it typically has been. The folks from Prudential, because of the time we were meeting at then, and we were only talking about through the end of March, weren't able to give us um, any real data on the uses of that because we were still probably talking about what was at that point, you know, information through the first couple of weeks of the pandemic. I would suspect that we'll have a, a more detailed report uh, for us uh, when we have the meeting, which covers, um, you know, plan activity through the end of June. Tony, do you have any anecdotal information at all about that? No, I'm, I'm afraid not. I, I think we're going to have to wait to see what happens with PRU. I haven't, nothing's come up in my discussions with our benefits department to indicate that, that we've seen a spike, but they would go through Prudential. We wouldn't necessarily see it. And so I think we're going to have to wait until we get, you know, some hard data and then we'll, we'll assess what sort of situation we're in and the employees are in. We have been doing more education of employees around the financial situation. We've worked with Marsh and others to continue to provide that and we will continue pushing education. Thank you. That'll be good to hear about at our next HR meeting. Great. Um, does anyone else have questions for any of our leaders here? If not, then I don't think we have any other business. Tony? Okay. Then we're done. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.